You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. All right, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get back into 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Let's pray. God, we do praise you and thank you for another opportunity that we have to gather with other believers, to encourage one another, to learn together, so that, God, we can be faithful to make disciples of all nations. God, I pray that you would teach us more this morning about you, what you desire for us. God, as we um, come to your word, I pray that we would hear it and receive it the way that you've called us to. God, that it would have a life-changing effect in us, and that, God, you would equip us to teach the word to others in a life-changing way as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 3. Before we get into um, our passage together, I want to kind of give some comments about the things that we discussed this morning in our first hour. We talked about difficult situations that one might face in making disciples, different sin-related issues that you would have to lead somebody out of and how you would do that. I think it's important to recognize that the issues we're talking about a lot of times aren't going to be a Christian intentionally rebelling against God. It's a Christian who needs to be educated that they are rebelling against God. I think there's a different perspective, and I think the attitude that we come to our disciples um, about it is different based off of, is this someone who knows better and is making a willful, rebellious decision, or is this someone who is new to the faith, new to Christ, and needs to be shown from the Word that these actions are not consistent with holiness and sanctification and that type of thing. Um, but that doesn't mean that there won't be times where we have to speak in a, in a harsh or hard way uh, to our disciples. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul's talking, and if you know much about the church at Corinth, they were a church that uh, struggled at times to get it which may not be too uncommon from how we can be at times. Um, Paul struggled with the church at Corinth, loved them deeply, but was constantly having to rebuke and correct their actions. And there's some humor kind of entwined with seriousness in 2 Corinthians 12, 19. Paul's addressing you know, sinful things with them, addressing things that they got to get right. And in verse 19 it says, Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish. Paul says, When I come and visit you, I'm afraid that what I'm going to see is not what I want to see. That you have not responded to what I've asked you to do, you know, based off the word. And... Um, He says, and that you may find me not as you wish. He says, if I show up and find that you're not how I want you to be, you're going to find me being a way that you don't want me to be. That there's going to be some some serious, stern addressing about this. That if I show up and you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, it ain't going to be good. I'm going to be the type of person that you don't want to speak, that you don't want to see. I mean, he's serious about this. He says... That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, that I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality, 
that they have practiced. And this is an example of Paul teaching young believers what they should be doing, and they're not responding to the word. And Paul doesn't beat around the bush at all with them. He says, you have to do these things. Not because it's my preference, not because it's what I think about the situation. You have to do this because God says it. And if you're not going to do it, it's not going to be a good situation between me and you. It's a, it's a tough love type of situation that Paul's communicating here. What does he mean there when he says, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God is going to humiliate me before you? What does he, what does he say? Um, what is that in reference to? How would God humiliate him before those guys? Yeah, mine says humble. I don't, I don't know what the exact Greek word is. I think what he says after that gives us an idea a little bit of, of what he means in saying that um, I'm going to maybe visibly be mourning over you about your sin. That it, it may cause me such distress that I may break down. That I guess, you know, maybe the translators look at that and say that could be an act of humiliation to kind of fall apart, I guess, in the sense of these people when he gets there and, and they're not doing what they, they're supposed to be doing. Um, in trying to address it with him, that he just kind of falls apart, that he's just, I mean, he's just sorrowful over their situation. And you may have experienced that before where you're trying to communicate something to somebody and your emotion is just overcoming you to where you, you're having a hard time getting it out without crying because you love these people, you love this person so much and it's so hard to communicate truth to somebody who's not wanting to hear it. And that may be kind of the idea um, going on there. In, in the things that we talked about this morning, I want to just kind of touch on them real quick, and then we'll move into um, our passage for today. There, there were some specific things that I think are, are clear from Scripture that would need to be addressed um, with a younger believer. Uh, the, the church attendance thing. We said, what do you do with someone who has been one to Christ but doesn't see the necessity of coming to church? This is something that I know some people in here have dealt with, trying to disciple a believer who doesn't want to align themselves with church. Um, I told you that I think it's an absolute necessity that if someone's going to follow Christ, they have to be in a local church. Because if you read the New Testament, it is very difficult to do what the New Testament tells you to do as a Christian unless you're with a body of believers. Now, you know, we could say, well, I'm just going to have a close-knit fellowship with a group of Christians and call that my church. Well, there's also a lot of passages that talk about our responsibility to submit to biblical leadership, to submit to biblical authority. And those passages fall apart and lose relevance if if it's not if you're not aligned with the local church. Um, You need older believers to to follow after. And so I've seen it time after time. Someone makes a decision to follow Christ, says they want to follow Christ. They don't get into a local church and they're nowhere to be found right now because they, they didn't mature in their faith, and it shows that their response was not genuine. Um, the uh, baptism issue. 15-year-old person gets saved, wants to be baptized, but their parents say, if you get baptized, we're going to kick you out of the house. This was actually someone who called me and asked me what to do with the situation. My advice to the person was to not press the baptism issue at the time. Uh, my reasoning for that was based off of the age that it's a 15-year-old. That this is someone who's definitely still under the authority of their parents. And because of what we're talking about baptism, there's some differences of opinion by godly men about when to baptize. Meaning that 
Mark Dever, guy, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, a guy I respect immensely. They don't baptize anybody in their church until they're 18. So 15-year-old gets saved. He couldn't get baptized at Capitol Hill Baptist Church until he is 18. Um, so there's, there's some churches that make the decision, we're not going to baptize until the kid is older. And so more than likely, other issues are going to come up in that type of situation. It's not going to just be a baptism thing. Um, if the parents push the issue and said, we're not going to let you go to church, we're not going to let you meet with Christians, then I think at that point it's time to get them out of the house. But if it's just baptism at the time, I personally wouldn't push it. Not to say that it would be wrong to push it and say, you got to get baptized and get, get out of your house. More than likely, I would sit down with, with that person and develop a plan of how are we going to get you out of the house when you're 18, 19, so that you can make these decisions without having to fear your parents kicking you out of the house. That was the, that was the advice that I gave to the person about the baptism thing. Um, I think the music and the raunchy comedies and the language are all issues that you hope for increased maturity as they're in the word. I think it's hard to draw a strict line in saying what is and isn't sinful because a lot of preference comes into what is and isn't profitable based off of Philippians 4. Um, I think that you want to continue to push towards maturity. Um, and so I think there's some movies and some music that, let's be honest, like, I mean, if you're a Christian, like, you just shouldn't be engaged in that. And then there's others that start to kind of, the line starts to get blurred a little bit. So I think the important thing with those is that you're pushing towards maturity, that you're trying to eliminate as best you can just blatant, obvious movies or music that are contradictory to holiness. And then in that, hoping and praying for continued maturity, that even more wise decisions are made as that person grows in their knowledge of God to where less and less controversial music and movies and language type of thing is being used. Um, for me, the Hooters thing is, is, a, is a must address quickly. Um, just because I've, I've, never met a, I've never met a guy who didn't struggle um, with, with lust and didn't struggle with thoughts of sexual immorality. I think the, the Hooters industry is driven towards that. It's, it's constructed for that purpose, to appeal to men for that purpose. Um, and, and to me, it, it demonstrates some, some immaturity in there, but it's, just, it's, it's hard to line up godliness with that type of activity because most of the time when guys go there, there's not a lot of godliness happening. And so for me, that would be an area of concern. If no other reason, just the personal uh, sanctification of that individual. Like, don't put yourself in a situation where everybody's trying to get you to fall into sin, where, where the whole thing has been constructed to appeal to your flesh. Um, so for me, that would be a, a concern. But I think that's a situation where someone could get saved and not see the immediate danger necessarily, especially if they've kind of grown up in a culture where that's accepted. Um, the, the relationship one to me is, is a huge, is a huge deal, whether we're talking about unsaved dating relationship that someone has been saved in and now trying to deal with that, or just simply all my close friends are unsaved. I've seen those type of things destroy faith quicker than anything. Um, for me, when Paul talks about it in Corinthians where he says we should not be yoked together with unbelievers, I personally would immediately encourage a believer who is dating an unbeliever to end that relationship. Um, 
That may be a process of discussions, but I don't think Paul is limiting it to just marriage. Because you have some people who say, well, I'm going to win this person to Christ and then we're going to get married. I would never marry an unbeliever, but it's okay to date an unbeliever because I'm going to share the gospel with them. Uh, nine times out of ten, that, that never that never works. Um, that person will always try to get that person to, um, to not follow Christ as passionately as they want to. Because if we're following Christ like we should, it radically shapes our life. And there's... You're on opposite ends of the spectrum. That's Paul's point. You can't have light and darkness. You can't have righteousness and unrighteousness trying to be blended together. Um, I think Paul, Paul communicates it totally different if the marriage has already happened. If you've got a believer and an unbeliever married, Paul says you stay with the unbeliever as long as they'll tolerate you. As long as they'll let you stay, you stay in hopes that they will be one to Christ. Because, I mean, to me that even communicates the sanctity of marriage even outside of Christian marriage. That that God says marriage is sanctified. I mean, it's, it's special whether it's believers and believers or unbelievers and unbelievers. Because Paul never encourages divorce with a believer and an unbeliever. He says, you stay as long as you can. If it's a dating relationship, I think that that can be a huge hindrance to that person's growth and sanctification. And um, through a lot of discernment and a lot of humility and a lot of grace, I would definitely communicate for that to be um, ended as soon as possible. And encouraging stronger relationships with believers that begin to minimize the relationship with unbelievers as much as possible, too. Because I think Satan uses all these scenarios as a tool to damage faith. If I can get a believer to be engaged with unbelievers or to be engaged in un, uh, unchristian type activity, that's going to always be an attack on the faith. I think Paul was so concerned about that in Thessalonians. He says, I'm so concerned that the tempter is tempting you to leave the faith. And I think Satan could use all these scenarios that we're talking about as a way to damage the faith. And, and I heard Jake reference in this passage um, in his group, and I think it's an important one to look at in the context of all these things that we're talking about. In Ephesians 4, um, Paul is talking about the, the new life that we've been called to. He says, um, verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. To put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The way Paul talks about this Old man doesn't go away and new man doesn't come automatically as soon as you pray a prayer and get saved. But there is an active responsibility for the believer to put away old man and put on new man. So when I was talking to the girl at Mount Gilead who said, hey, I'm a lesbian. I have, I have homosexual desires for another girl and I don't see those going away. I, I think this is just me. I think God's created me this way. I looked right at her and I said, you know what, before I was, you know, if I wasn't a believer, because I was five when I became a believer, if I, was, if I was your age and was just now becoming a believer, my old man would tell me that I should fulfill my sexual desires however I want to. I told her, I said, we're not talking about a, a homosexual or a heterosexual situation here. We're talking about you have a responsibility not to gratify your sexual desires however you want to. The scripture has guidelines for how that takes place. I said, you may think that this is what you are. And I said, if you're a believer, 
You're not this way anymore. You were born into sin. You were born with, with messed up sexual desires. A heterosexual person is born with messed up sexual desires. They have a, a sexual desire to satisfy it in a way that's unholy and ungodly. And I told her, I said, if you're a believer, you've got to put off the old man. You've got to put on the new man. You've got you to change who you are through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and um, you have to search God's word to see how your sexual desires can be fulfilled. And I said, what you're talking about with, with your homosexual desires, God doesn't permit those to be fulfilled. And so it will be tougher for you to handle those things that you were born into sin with. But you've got to put on the new man. And I think that can be the case for, for all these situations. Communication that old man has to be put off, new man has to be put on. Yeah, I understand you have a desire to sin. I, I understand you have a desire to, to go in this direction and satisfy your flesh. But you have to be renewed in your mind, Paul says. You have to change the way you think. You have to, you have to allow the Holy Spirit to change your desires. Some of that happens automatically. There's new things that happen. You are a new creation. So at times, Paul says, this has happened. But then he also says it still needs to continue happening. It still needs to grow and mature in you. And I think this is healthy for us to talk about and for you to, to go home and continue thinking about these scenarios that we talked about today and how you would handle them. Because here's the thing. I could ask you guys, do you know the gospel? Yes. Do you know this doctrine? Yes. Do you know this doctrine? Yes. You may be good at being a Christian yourself, but it's a whole other thing when you have to teach somebody else what it means to be a Christian. There, there are things that I'm good at that it's really hard to teach someone else how to be good at. You know, I can play a sport and be athletic in it and be, be good at it, but it can be difficult to teach someone else how to play a sport. What we have to do is not only be godly and pursuing Christ ourselves, we do have to learn how to teach someone else how to do that. And that where, that's where it can be hard. You know, Jake can say, hey, I'm not going to watch raunchy comedies. I'm just not. Like, I put on the new man. I'm not going to do that. Wonderful. How are you going to teach someone who hasn't put on the new man in that area yet? How are you going to get them to see that? And um, me and Courtland were talking this week, and she was like, I wish, I wish somebody could just get in my head and see what the Holy Spirit is telling me and showing me. Like, I wish I could put that into this person. And that can be frustrating. Like, I wish you could just see what the Holy Spirit showing me through his word. But we have to figure out how to flesh that out, how to communicate that to somebody. So the Holy Spirit does the same work in them through the word that he's done in us. And that's where the disciple making part becomes messy at times because it's not clear cut. And it does require you being established in your faith so that you can exhort others in the faith. All right. Um, let's get into First Thessalonians now, chapter three. Verses six through ten, we said that. Verses, verses 1 through 5, Paul has uh, said, I've got to send Timothy to you because I'm afraid that Satan's doing something. I'm afraid that Satan is trying to lead you astray. And so we sent Timothy to you to establish you in the faith, to exhort you in the faith, to encourage you, to make sure that everything's going as it should, basically. And then we get the report back from Timothy in verse 6. And this is really where 1 Thessalonians goes from past tense to present slash future tense. Everything that we've looked at up to this point has been what has already happened with the church. We're now, it's like a huge introduction basically. Now we're about to transition into new instruction, things that the Thessalonians haven't learned yet or haven't done yet. So there's a, a break in transition that happens here starting with verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly... And long to see us as we long to see you. 
For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. This is the the good news report that comes from Timothy. Timothy comes back to Paul and says, things are going really good at this church. And some of what Paul has already described in chapters 1 and 2 is a result of hearing this report. That their faith has sounded forth. That they are enduring trials. That that they are being faithful. That they did receive the word. That they did apply the word. And now Paul is commending them for this good report. Hey, the reason I know you're doing all this stuff is because Timothy came back to us. He made it back and he's told us all these things. And he says, we feel an unbelievable amount of joy about what God is doing in your life. Uh, A couple of quick initial applications. The perseverance of others should bring us great joy. In your notes, the perseverance of others should bring us great joy. All these verses, the joy that Paul's feeling in these verses is wrapped up in the growth of this church. The perseverance of this church. They're doing what they should be doing. They're enduring trials and temptations. They're staying faithful. When we see other believers persevere in the faith, that should bring us great joy. Next, the perseverance of others must be a prayer priority for us. The perseverance of others must be a prayer priority for us. We're going to see that as as joyful and encouraged as Paul is about what they've done already, he's so encouraged about the sanctification of this church, he continues to pray for more. He's not content. He's not satisfied with what he's seen yet. He wants more. Why? Because the goal is glorification, which we know won't happen until Jesus comes back. But it's, a sense, it's, it's kind of similar to a, a head coach. Football team just wins a huge game. Everybody's celebrating in the locker room. We were victorious. We won a great victory. Coach says, see you at practice on Monday. We got a lot to work on. We, got, we are not perfect. We had a lot of mistakes in that game. We got a lot to correct before our next game. That's kind of what you see Paul here. He, he enjoys the victory. He says, great, like I'm so glad that you guys are being victorious. We still got a lot to work on. And he demonstrates that by his attitude of prayer. He says, I'm praying for you night and day. So perseverance of others must be a prayer priority for us. And then lastly, the perseverance of others must be something we work for. Not only does it bring joy to us, not only do we pray for it for others, we also get involved with it. Paul says, I want to come to you so I can supply or fill up what is lacking in your faith. So it it involves us getting involved. The the perseverance of others is something that we participate in. All right, a faithful co-worker of their gospel. We said that Paul used that title for Timothy last week, so we'll continue with that idea again this week. The focus is to keep disciples from being moved and instead standing firm. We said last week that Paul wants to keep them from being moved in their afflictions. He now uses language in verses 6 through 10 where he gives us what he's after. Not, does he, not only does he not want them to be moved, he wants them to stand firm, hold their ground, to resist the, the temptation to back off or to abandon the faith because of the difficulties they are experiencing. Last week we said, faithful co-worker of the gospel establishes others in their faith. We teach them doctrine. We teach them what they need to know about God's word. Secondly, we exhort others in the faith. We teach them how to apply their knowledge to their life. 
We teach them how to apply their knowledge to life. That's where we teach a, a new believer, hey, it's, it's against God's word for you to be sexually immoral. You're not to have even sexual thoughts that would not glorify God. And so that's, that's doctrine that we teach them there. And then application is, that probably means you shouldn't go to Hooters. But that's, that's the application part of that teaching. We can teach them, hey, sexual purity is important for a Christian. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, well, that means that you probably shouldn't be involved in watching this or, or listening to this or going to these places where you're going to be possibly tempted to engage in these things. That's where sometimes the disconnect happens. We get doctrine in our disciples, and then maybe we don't see it get lived out the way that we need to. And there's both, establishing them in their faith, exhorting them in their faith. Number three, we prepare others for attacks to their faith. Paul says, remember, it's coming. You're destined for this. You're destined for attacks. You're destined for suffering. You're destined for persecution. You're destined to be tempted. You're destined to have your faith tried. So be prepared. Get ready to weather it. Expect it. And then we come to the next three things that it means to be a co-worker of the gospel. Number four, rejoices over the faith of others. A co-worker of the gospel rejoices over the faith of others. He says to the church, he says, Now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. He says, Timothy brought us the good news of your faith. The Greek layout of that is essentially the same word that would be used for sharing the gospel. Think about what Paul just said there. He says, Timothy's come back and he's essentially shared the gospel with us when he talks about you. It's strong language. It's really the only place in the New Testament where this wordage is used and it's not talking about sharing faith in Christ. But I think the reason that Paul is able to use this wordage is he's essentially saying, or Timothy has is, is, is come back and said, hey, the good news worked. Like, we shared the good news with these people and it, it's working. Like, they're being faithful. Like, it, the, the seed got planted, like Jesus said, and, and it's flourishing, like it's growing. And so Paul says essentially, when Timothy came back and told us how you guys are doing, it was essentially him talking about the gospel. It was like he was telling us about the gospel. He was basically saying that to hear that the good news is working in you is good news. To hear that the good news is working in you, that's good news. That, that's, that's what the gospel is. It's faith in Christ that leads to radical transformation. And so this report that we've gotten is basically good news. He's excited over the fact that their salvation is genuine. Satan has not led them away from the faith. Their faith and love has resulted in belief and action. They're, they're, they're holding fast to what they've been called to, to believe in. They're holding fast to Christ. And they're holding fast to living that out. Their, their salvation is being shown to be genuine. And Satan has not led them away from the faith. And you notice their true faith leads to love for others. Paul commends them for their faith and love. He says, Timothy's come back and given us good news of your faith and good news of your love. True faith always leads to love for others. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This is Paul talking to the church at Ephesus, and he's, he's, he's encouraged by the same thing. I've heard of your faith, and I've heard of your love towards others. 
The love towards others is what shows the faith to be real. It shows genuine conversion. That people are loving other people, serving other people, taking care of other people. Paul tells the church at Ephesus the same thing. Colossians 1, 3-5. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Again, faith, love, and hope, which we saw in 1 Thessalonians 1. Paul uses the same word as he talks about their faith, their love, and their steadfastness in their hope. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Once again, that commendation for faith, love, and then hope. Titus chapter 2, verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Paul uses these three, these three words all through the New Testament to show signs of genuine conversion. There's faith, there's real belief, there's love, it's being acted out towards other people, and there's a steadfastness of hope. There's a, a hope and a joy that Jesus is coming back. Now, if we're looking at 1 Thessalonians 3, what's missing from what he just said to them? It says, we're, we're excited about the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. What's, what's missing there? Hope. He, he doesn't talk about their hope here. Anybody know why he probably doesn't mention it? Well, they do because he talked about it in, cha- in chapter 1. Yeah, there's some lacking in their hope. There's some lacking about what happens when Jesus comes back. And he's about to teach them in chapter 4. He says, i got to fill up what's lacking in your faith. And specifically for this church, they lacked a correct understanding of the second coming. So he says, really encouraged about your faith. Really encouraged about your love. I'm not going to mention hope here. Because specifically I'm about to tell you what needs to be added to your hope. So he doesn't include hope here. Because chapter 4 is all about end time second coming, which is going to be challenging to teach. Because some of that's still lacking in my faith. Um, in 1 Timothy 6.10, we get the second part there in your notes. True faith leads to love for others. Wrong love leads to destroyed faith. He's encouraged because they're believing in Jesus and they're putting their love towards others. 1 Timothy 6.10, we get the opposite. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. See, when our love gets off course, when we start loving the wrong things, it destroys our faith. When we have faith in God, we love others. When we have faith in this world, when we're consumed with the things of this world, we love money, we love possessions, and it damages our faith. Paul's encouraging them by saying, you love other people. You don't love money. You don't love the things of this world. Your faith is strong. You're standing fast, and I'm encouraged by it. He's encouraged as well because they're following his example. Timothy's come back and, and, and essentially said, hey, they still like us. Like, they don't hate us. I think there was some fear from Paul that they were going to, Timothy was going to come back and say, um, 
Everybody's really angry that you shared this gospel with them because it's brought hardship on them. Like it's, it's made life worse. And your name is, is not good in the community anymore. Like people curse you. Like they really don't like you. I think there was some fear from Paul about that. He's saying, man, I love you guys. I really hope you still love me. Like I'm hearing reports that the pressure has really been applied. That it's really going hard for you guys. My prayer is that you still love me as much as I love you. And Timothy comes back with this report and says, hey, everybody loves us. Everybody wants to see us. Like they're longing for you just like you're longing for them. And it was, a, it was an overwhelming joy for Paul to know that, again, his, his labor hasn't been in vain. He says, your faithfulness makes all my hard work worth it. I haven't wasted my life. I haven't wasted my life. Implication number one. I've been entrusted to point others to God. I've been entrusted to point others to God. We've been entrusted with the gospel, which means we've been entrusted to share it with others, disciple them, point them to God. Okay? Underneath that, when we aren't fulfilling that purpose, our life becomes pointless. And I'm going to show you how Paul shares that with us. When we aren't fulfilling that purpose, our life becomes pointless when we are fulfilling that purpose, our life makes sense. When we aren't fulfilling the purpose of pointing others to God, life's pointless from a Christian's perspective. When we are fulfilling that purpose, our life makes sense. Where do I get that? Well, in verse 8, he says, we've gotten this good report. And he says, for now we live. Some of the Greek words there means now we can breathe again. Now we can now we can let out a sigh of relief. Now, ah, like what we're doing matters. What we're doing is not pointless. Remember in Philippians two, if you want to jot this down, I don't know if it's in your notes. Philippians two twenty one through twenty six. Remember Paul's in jail and, and he's wrestling with, do I want to die and be with Christ or do I want to stay here? He's kind of flushing out that that question in his mind in his letter. He says. I mean, obviously to die and be with Christ is, is far much better than being here on this earth. I'm in jail. I'm being beaten for my faith. To, to be in glory with my Savior, who I long for, obviously that's much better. But he says, for me to stay is not pointless. Why? Because I want to invest in you. He says, I need to add to your faith in Philippians. He says, for me to stay is a benefit to you. Paul says, if it's up to me, I'm out of here. I got, I got way better things to do in heaven. I got way better things to enjoy than the stuff on this earth in heaven. He says, my only reason for staying here on this earth is because I want to build you up in your faith. He's, he's, he's echoing the same thing here to the Thessalonians. He says, when I hear that, that, that my investment hasn't been wasted, it means that I can live. It means that, that life makes sense. I can breathe a sigh of relief. My life isn't being wasted. So for us, we've been entrusted to, to share the gospel with others, to point others to God. If we're not doing that, from, from Scripture's perspective, our life is pointless. There's no reason for us to be here. We, should, we might as well go ahead and move on to heaven if we're not going to point others to God. But when we are pointing others to God, life makes sense. And it even makes sense in the midst of hardship. Remember, everything's bad around Paul. I mean, things are bad around Paul. He gets one report that people in Thessalonica are being faithful, and it's like... Everything's good. Everything's good. Like everything makes sense. Every, I can live again knowing that you guys are being faithful. Implication number two, when others turn to God, 
We receive joy and he receives the glory. When others turn to God, we receive joy and he receives the glory. Look what Paul says. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul is not looking one bit for any thanks from God here. That's what you would expect. You would expect for this report, from a human perspective, you would expect this report to come from Thessalonica. Essentially saying, Paul, you're a genius at church planting. I mean, you took a bunch of people who had never heard of Jesus... You've convinced them that Jesus was God's son. They put their faith in this Jesus, and now they're being pressured to give it up. Some of them are maybe even losing their lives, and these people are staying faithful. You're a genius church planner. You would expect possibly even for Paul to say, where's my thanks, God? Like, where, where, where's my credit for this? Like, what an unbelievable job I've done. This is what we do in our culture. This is what we do in our culture. Adam's a huge fan of the Alabama Crimson Tide. Alabama was really, really bad a few years back, um, and it, it was great for our relationship because I could watch Alabama games and be fine with it because I knew they were going to lose, and that didn't affect my team. Then they hired a guy named Nick Saban who's viewed as maybe the best college coach in the country, and all they do is win championships now. And the man is worshipped like a god in Alabama. I mean, they had this huge bronze statue outside of the stadium of Nick Saban. I mean, he is viewed as the, the fixer of all of Alabama's problems. He is viewed as the savior for Alabama football. He gets all the credit for turning this program around, from taking a bunch of losers and making them into winners. And that's, that's, that's what we do in our culture. We, we give human credit to people when they accomplish stuff like that, when they, when they beat all the odds and, and they take a group of people and accomplish something that you wouldn't expect them to be able to accomplish. And that's what Paul does here. But Paul doesn't turn around and, and expect any type of thanks for it. He says, I'm trying to come up with a way to thank God. To thank God for the joy that I'm getting from this. You see, Paul's gotten what he wants from it. He's gotten his joy. He's gotten his crown. He's not expecting God to line up and give him some accolades and name him church planner of the year. He's not looking to be in magazines and get interviews about how to plant churches. He's saying, God, like, I don't even know how to thank you. For the joy that I'm getting from watching my disciples persevere in the faith. He's already gotten what he's looking for. And he's directing thanks back to God for accomplishing this. We don't look to be thanked for our efforts. And we don't thank those who've been faithful. We overwhelmingly thank God for the overwhelming joy of seeing the investment we've made pay off. We overwhelmingly thank God. For the overwhelming joy of seeing the investment we've made pay off. Paul says, we're trying to think of a way to thank God for this and we just can't figure it out. We can't come up with the right words to thank God for the unbelievable amount of joy he's given us from seeing our disciples be faithful. He says, we can't even thank God enough for this. We are so overwhelmed with joy about this. And that should give us a whole new perspective about how we should feel about seeing other people in our church succeed spiritually. We're so conditioned to focus on ourselves, focus on our needs. Philippians 2 talks all about focusing on the needs of others, which doesn't just necessarily mean physical needs, but even spiritual needs. 
Paul says, I'm so consumed with you guys making it to the second coming that I'm seeing you guys be faithful. And it's just overwhelmingly joyful for me. I don't even know how to thank God for how good this is for me. You're my crown. You're my reward. I've already gotten what I want from this. But I told you at the beginning, Paul isn't content with their faithfulness. He continues to pray for them and he continues to want to add to their faith. Basically, he says, we ain't there yet. He's like the coach saying, that was a great victory Friday night. I'll see you at practice on Monday. We got a ton to work on. We are not where we need to be yet. That was a great victory, but it certainly exposed some areas that we are off. Paul says, I'm so joyful. I'm so overwhelmed by how faithful you guys are being. I can't thank God enough. Doesn't thank the church. Doesn't thank them for being faithful. Doesn't say, man, I just really appreciate you guys doing what I ask. Because that's just so, that makes me so happy. He thanks God because he sees God as the source and the reason for why they're even able to do this. Then he comes back. Verse 10, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Number five, praise for the faith of others. He prays for the faith of others. Paul's not content with where his disciples are. Instead, he's motivated to pray earnestly for increased growth. He wants to pray earnestly for increased growth. This is the second time he's used this idea of of night and day. What else did he say about night and day to this church? You remember? He said, I work night and day. Why? To, To fill up your faith, to keep you from having to pay me financially. I work really hard night and day so that I don't have to gain anything from you. So that I can have time and you can have time for us to do discipleship. Now he says, I pray night and day for you. I pray night and day for you. And he says, I pray for you earnestly. The word earnestly means super abundantly. Super abundantly. And it's a, it's a different word than what's normally used for prayer sometimes. This idea for prayer is to ask or to beg. Paul says, I, I, night and day, I beg God for you. I beg God for your sanctification. I do it super abundantly. Now, I don't know if any of us in here could describe our prayer life for the sanctification of others with the word superabundantly. Now, I'm not saying that you guys don't pray for each other in this church. I'm not saying that you don't pray for people that you're discipling. I just don't know if we pray for each other superabundantly, like Paul says here. He says, I pray for you night and day, which is tough because he works night and day as well. Which means Paul's not saying, I've got this time in the morning, about 10 minutes, that I spend time praying for other people in my church. He's saying, I just pray for you guys all the time. Which means I I picture Paul making tents, and in the process of making tents, he's got people on his mind that he's praying for. Which means prayer time isn't 10 minutes in the morning before you get in your car and go to work or go to school. It's it's kind of an all-day thing. When we talked about prayer at Winter Retreat, we talked about what praying without ceasing means, is that... We kind of start praying in the morning, and we don't stop praying until the end of the day, because all day long we're just constantly offering up prayers to God. Paul says, I pray for you guys night and day. I'm begging God for you. Super abundantly, I'm praying for your sanctification. That should be a conviction to us that if we're going to really make disciples, for those of us that are engaged in disciple-making right now, we're meeting with people. If we're not seeing the results that we want to see, we need to see how our prayer life is for those people. And if it ain't super abundantly yet, 
then we still got work to do as disciple makers. Paul says, I'm praying for you super abundantly. I listed for you some prayers of a disciple maker. We won't get into all these because they're lengthy. Some of you may remember I taught on this at Mount Gilead, um, a sermon titled Prayers of a Disciple Maker. And I may post that this week so you can hear the comments on all these passages. These are great passages for you to even use as a prayer to God for other people in this church. These are prayers in Scripture that Paul prays for his different church plants. And these are great prayers for you to bring into your own prayer life as you're praying for others. Implication number one, I must pray for more sanctification. I must pray for more sanctification. And implication number two, I must pray for continued perseverance. I think that's what Paul was praying for for these people. He says, I pray for you night and day. And he's about to say, I'm going to try to come see you so that I can supply what's lacking in your faith. If we were to ask Paul, Paul, what are you praying for for these people? I mean, they're, they're pretty faithful. I mean, they're, they're doing great things. I think Paul would simplify it and say, I'm praying for more sanctification for them. They need more faith. Their faith needs to go deeper. And I'm also praying that they would continue to persevere. Because Paul wants to see them at the second coming. Luke, uh, in Luke... Luke 22, 31-32, Jesus says this thing to, to Peter. Jesus is talking to Peter, and he says, Peter, um, I have a unique perspective because I'm God, and so I kind of know everything that's going on. He says, Satan has demanded you so that he can sift you. He says, I know supernaturally that Satan is going to intentionally try to break your faith, but I've prayed for you that it won't, that it won't cripple you. He says, I pray for you that you'll get through what Satan's about to do to you. Now, we know that Satan tries to destroy his faith through discouragement. I mean, Peter denies Jesus three times on, on the grand stage. Like, here's your opportunity to show your faith. Three times he blows it and denies Jesus. And Satan would have loved for that to have crippled Peter's faith where he would have said, I'm, I'm out of here. Like, Jesus can't use me. Jesus says, I'm praying for you. It's not going to cripple you. You're going to persevere. Jesus allows him to affirm his faith three times on the beach. We've talked about this before at main event. Three times Jesus gives Peter the opportunity to affirm his faith in front of all the disciples. He says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times Peter's able to affirm that he will continue to follow Jesus. It's a direct answer to Jesus' prayer. So we pray for perseverance for our disciples as well, that they will resist the temptations that Satan will bring their way. Then number six, contribute to the faith of others. We rejoice... We pray, we contribute to the faith of others. He recognizes that they aren't perfect yet. What's really important, I think, is that he praises them for their faithfulness. Paul doesn't just jump in and say, okay, great, you guys are doing good, awesome. Now let me tell you some more stuff. He takes some time to encourage them, to affirm them. We talked in our men's group on Wednesday night, for us, how important it can be for affirmation. That sometimes we just need to hear it that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Sometimes our bosses or people that are in charge of us are constantly telling us what we're not doing right. And when we are doing right, we just don't hear from them. I think it's important for us to affirm to our disciples, affirm younger believers that, hey, we're really glad to see that you're progressing in the faith. Like, that is so great. That is so joyful for me to see the progress that you are making. And then coming with that further instruction about what needs to happen. That's what Paul does. He praises them. And then says, i got to get there because there's still some things that you're lacking. 
He wants to supply what is lacking to cause, and that supply what is lacking, the, the phrase means to cause something to be in condition to function well. To cause something to be in the correct condition to function well. Some things that Paul doesn't mean. When he says, I've got to supply what's lacking in your faith, he's not trying to say that they lack zeal or loyalty. Remember, their, their faith is being sounded forth all over the place. So he's not concerned about them not being faithful enough or loyal enough to Christ. Because they're, they're persevering in the midst of persecution. Here's what Paul does mean. I think he means that there's a lack of knowledge or insight about applying faith to daily life. There's a lack of knowledge or insight about applying faith to daily life. He's saying you still need some instruction about how to take your knowledge and, and apply it. You still need to know that Philippians says only watch things and listen to things that are profitable. And you need to be able to know how to apply that when you're renting a movie or going to the movie theater. Like, I think that's what he's saying. You still need some knowledge and insight about how to apply this. Secondly, a lack of knowledge about certain doctrines. We're about to see in chapter 4 that he's got to correct or inform them about what it means for Jesus to come back. They were concerned that people who had gotten saved in their church plant and now had died, like what happened to them? Like, where are they? Did did we just lose our friend? Like, I mean, what happens now? Because... Because, you know, we've got our old beliefs about the afterlife. What, what are we supposed to believe about the afterlife? So he's got to correct or give them knowledge about certain doctrines. And then, lastly, a lack of change that still needs to be made. There's still some things that need to change that haven't been changed yet. And we'll see that in chapter 4 as well. Some, some actions that they're still involved in that need to stop or need to be corrected. So, it, it, it's again, this idea that They're young believers, and they just need to be told. This isn't a rebellious church that's just intentionally not doing what God wants. It's a young church that needs to be instructed, that needs to know what it means to follow Jesus. Last two implications. Number one, we are called to make disciples, not converts. Paul's in this for the long haul. I mean, this this is, this is where Paul could easily check out and say, great, planted a church in Thessalonica, Timothy says they're doing great. All right, let's move on. Like, they're good. They'll take care of themselves. No. He says, i got to get back to you and continue doing what I was doing. This would be perfect opportunity to say, okay, pass off them. Let's start over with new people. But Paul, Paul is telling us it's not about making converts. It's about making disciples that are surrendered to Christ until the second coming. And then implication number two, we must keep adding to others' faith. To ensure their perseverance. We must keep adding to others' faith to ensure their perseverance. Which leads me for leads me to two applications for us. What areas in my life am I lacking in my faith? I want you guys to spend some time this week thinking. What are some areas in your faith that are still lacking? And trust me, everybody has some. We're not perfect. We haven't been made perfect. We're all still sinful. We're all still waiting for glorified bodies. So I want you to honestly assess what are some areas in your life that are still lacking in faith. If Paul were to write to Sovereign Hope and say, I need to get to you guys and help supply what's lacking in your faith, what would he be thinking of for you? If he was writing a letter to you, we know for the Thessalonians, we're going to see what what they were lacking in chapter 4. What are you lacking in your faith that Paul would write in chapter 4 for you? 
And then next, am I prepared to help supply what others are lacking in their faith? Are you equipped right now to supply what somebody in this church needs for their faith? A new believer comes in. Hey, um, I heard this is where you guys meet. I just got saved. Uh, like last week, like one of your members shared the gospel with me, got saved. I don't know anything. But I wanted to come because I heard this is where y'all meet on Sundays. Are you equipped to not only be a good Christian, but to teach someone else how to be a Christian? And if you're not, you're in the right place because we're going to work this out together. We're going to keep talking about this. We're going to keep doing stuff to help get you guys to where you need to be. This morning was an example of how we want to do activities like that to challenge your thinking, to put you in situations where you can grow in decision-making about how to do this, how to fill somebody up who's lacking in their faith. Because all the situations we talked about this morning are people who are lacking in their faith, people who don't know what Scripture has to say about these things and need to be told. So I would encourage you to, to go home this week to think about the other scenarios that you weren't in a group for. Could you handle those scenarios? If we had a guy come in who was dealing with an issue that you didn't talk about this morning, use some time this week to think through those things, to, to wrestle with it in your mind, to ask other people in this church, hey, how would you handle this? So that you can be equipped to handle it. So that you can be equipped to supply what others are lacking in their faith. All right, I'm going to um, close this in prayer, and then I need you to stay for just a second so I can give you some... Um, further instruction. Let's pray. God, we praise you and thank you that you have um, called us to be a part of this church plan together. God, we thank you that you give us the Thessalonian church as an encouragement to what you can do here. God, we see the um, establishment of their faith that you've worked, knowing that you can also establish our faith in the same way. God, I pray that we would be individuals who take disciple making seriously. God, that everything that we did today would encourage us to examine where we're at in the disciple-making process. God, that we would not just be content to follow you on our own, that we would take seriously learning how to teach other people how to follow you, that we would figure out how to take the Holy Spirit and what he's teaching us in our minds and get that into other people's minds through showing them and exposing them to the word. God, we want our disciple-making to be totally rooted in Transformation that happens not because of preference or legalistic attitudes that we have, but because the word says it. So, God, I pray that you would teach us how to use the word for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness in the lives of others. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.